we celebrate that? There's 41 people in the building tonight. That's awesome. Good, good. So, yeah, allowed 40 in here and then, and then it's sitting in the doorways. So, um, so this is a passage about what to do about dodgy teaching in the church. Um, so we're going to work out, we're going to dig in, figure it out. Some of you have already been doing that all week in your groups and on your own. And then we're going to try and apply it to fathers in the home. And I emphasise the word try to apply it, all right? So let's see how we go with that. Um, so this is a letter, those of you guys who are new to this, written by the Apostle Paul to this fellow named Titus who has been given the job to set up and develop a healthy church in a place called Crete, which sounds like a pretty sweet gig if you know where Crete is. Crete's in the Mediterranean. It's one of the Greek islands, I think. Is that right? Have I got that right? It's one of the Greek islands. And so here's a guy named Titus setting up a church in, a, in the Greek islands. Like you can imagine him or others looking at him going, oh, geez, mate, that sounds really tough. Now I'll plant a church in the Greek islands. It's almost as sweet as being part of a church on, on the Coffs Coast, I reckon. Um, but it's not such a sweet gig. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. Someone giggled. I tried to make a joke. Um, it's actually not a very sweet gig at all when you look at the kind of culture that was pretty dominant in Crete. Did you, did you catch what one of the Cretan prophets says about what happens in Crete? Look at verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And Paul goes, yeah, that's about it. That, that, that's about what you could say about the people typically who live in this Greek island so not such a cushy place to live or to try to actually be part of a church or lead a church where that's the dominant culture, not so easy, right? And it's particularly not an easy gig for Titus here because it, this is not simply the culture outside the church. Unfortunately, like every church, what happens is people become Christians, but it takes a while to shake off the culture. Am I right? So what you've got is this church with Christians in it, but they're still really Cretan. And actually, that's kind of at the heart of some of this dodgy teaching and really poor behaviour in the church, is people have become Christians, but they're still, so much of the way they live, the way they think, and the way they behave in church is exactly like their neighbours who haven't come to Christ yet. So Christian, but still really Cretan. And, and, and it's not a very flattering, flattering thing to be told about yourself if this is your dominant culture. It's having a big impact on the church. Look at verse 11. It says, um, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households. So here's, here's the problem. Some, some of you, you may read over this kind of stuff and think, well, that's really harsh treatment of teaching that may not be completely correct. But here's what dodgy teaching does. It wrecks households. Like entire Christian households, get wrecked in their faith and in their functioning when what they're being taught is not sound and when they go off after things that are not spot on with this gospel of grace that we've been given. So it wrecks dodgy households. And the other thing it does when the word of God is maligned is it repels people who are on the hunt for Jesus. The Coffs Coast, whether you know it or not, whether we, is, 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 it's got stacks of people searching for life and hunting in all kinds of places, what they are hunting for deep down in their souls is to know the one who made them and to live for him. That is what brings contentment and satisfaction more than anything else. But the problem is if the church has got serious issues and dodgy teaching going on, it actually will repel people 
who are actually on the hunt for Jesus. What a tragedy. So false teaching or dodgy teaching is a pretty big problem. It actually really matters, Um, which is why Paul in the first part of chapter 1 goes on about why sound doctrine is so important and and why the trustworthy message needs to be held onto and preached and taught and lived in all aspects of life. And so the big thing we're kind of getting here in this first chapter is this. The church needs godly men and women, men and women of character, to lead and teach in appropriate settings. The church needs godly leaders to teach the trustworthy message and, and here's the thing that kind of bites us in our day and age, teach the trustworthy message and 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 correct what's false. You can see how Paul does it here, can't you? Um, Even at times to name and shame. Now that's not a very polite thing to do, but look, look what Paul does in verse 10. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. So he actually names a particular group. Like there's lots of people doing it, but he names one particular group and he goes, these guys, they're shockers. And, and he goes on and says, they must be silenced. It's pretty heavy. And you can kind of sit back from this and think, ah, that's just too heavy. It's too judgmental. It's too critical. It's too this and it's too that. But there's got to be a good reason, doesn't there, why the Apostle Paul gets so fired up. He does this in Galatians as well, remember? You might know some of the language in Galatians. He gets so fired up. He calls down curses on them and things like that. It's because the truth matters so much. The truth is what saves. To actually know the grace of God in Jesus Christ and hold to sound doctrine is what saves and keeps you. So therefore, when that gets twisted and messed with, people go to hell and families are just wrecked. So that's why the truth matters. And so Paul says here to Titus, mate, when you see dodgy teaching and it's all around you and it's kind of, I don't know exactly what the church looked like in Crete, probably a whole bunch of house churches with a lot of small groups off that, but it looks like there's a whole bunch of teachers, maybe in these home groups or house groups or whatever, who are spruiking this different kind of teaching um, that's wrecking things. Um, Just on the whole concept of judgy and critical, I, I can't help but to say this, whenever I read things like this, I'm like, I don't want to be that judgy, critical person. That's not who I want to be. It's certainly not popular these days to be that kind of person. But so our challenge as individuals, as Christians, and as a church together, I think is this, is to actually be able to make right judgment. Jesus calls us to. To actually know the truth and to be able to spot and be discerning about what's dodgy. So make right judgment without becoming a person or a church that's just overly judgmental about everything and everyone, yeah? That's our challenge, yep. Judge correctly, but not just turn into a big bunch of judgmental, just angry at everyone, you know? Um, We need to be able to think critically and be able to critique, and that's why you need your Bible open whenever, whoever's teaching here. You need to be able to critique what's said here. Um, We need to be able to critique without becoming overly critical by nature all the time about everyone and everything. Are you with me? Now, one of the shadows of being like a reformed evangelical church where we're really concerned about truth, one of the shadows that kind of lurks or one of the monsters that lurks in the shadow of reformed evangelicalism, if I could throw that line at you, is this, is this culture that can unfortunately develop of being critical by nature, just being a person where your eyebrows are just down all the time at everyone. 
And you know, the one thing that's going to help us, I believe, one thing that's going to help us not become an overly judgmental, overly critical church with people who are just frustrated at everyone and no one's got it right but us, you know what's going to help us? Is to understand the mercy of God for you and remind yourself constantly of how in need you are of a saviour, how undeserving you are of God's mercy and grace and let the joy bubble up in your heart that God would actually come and save you in your sin and just let that joy and, and keep going to the gospel so you actually reflect on that and let that joy actually affect the way you relate to others. I, I'm going to go out there and say that that's a very key thing that's going to help you not turn into an overly judgy, overly, overly critical person but you can still think clearly about the truth, yeah, is that we celebrate God's grace to us though we're so undeserving. And that's all of us, yeah? Now, where am I? Um, what is this teaching anyway that, that is happening in the church? Um, we don't know exactly. That, that's the thing actually with all the letters in the New Testament. You don't necessarily know exactly what the teaching is, but you pull together some pieces to get a general idea of what it's like. So have a look at some of the words there with me. Look at verse 10. Um, th- those who are teaching it are rebellious people. Um, so they're not really wanting to sit under authority themselves in the church, maybe in society as well. Um, it goes on and says there's meaningless talk, meaning there's lots of talk and there's lots of discussion and there's lots of arguments, but in the end it's meaningless. And I would suggest that's because it's about peripheral things that are not salvation issues, but it's just constant, passionate talk about little things, making little things big things. And I say that particularly because when you get to chapter 3, verse 9, actually flick there with me real quickly, chapter 3, verse 9, um, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. It's unprofitable and useless. So there's just this... Constant, you know, arguing and quarrelling and debating about things to do with the law, that's the Jewish law, and probably even on top of the Jewish law or the man-made you know, Jewish laws that are kind of on top of that. And it's just constant. I mean, come back to chapter 1 and pick out a few more words with me there. Um, verse 14 says, Pay no attention to Jewish myths or merely human commands. They reject the truth. Um, what is all this discussion about? Well, verse 15 gives us a bit of a clue if you've kind of picked up on this language elsewhere in other letters. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing's pure. That language of, 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 of that kind of a saying is usually in regards to food laws and washing laws in, in Judaism. In, in other words, and, and what it's saying is, to the pure, all things are pure, meaning to the person who's caught a hold of the gospel of grace and actually been purified by the grace of God and sits in the righteousness of Christ, if that's you and you're saved by grace through faith, to the pure, all things are pure. You can eat what you want. You can wash your hands, whatever you want. It's not about man-made rules to make yourself right with God because you've been washed by the blood of Jesus, right? To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are, what does it say? To those who... Um, sorry? Those who are, yeah, to those who are corrupted, nothing's pure. In other words, to those who have got the gospel in a corrupted way, then nothing's pure. Everything's an issue. And it is all about what you do and what you say and what law you keep and how you wash your hands and all that kind of stuff. So we don't know much more detail, but there's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a sense of what's happening. Um, when Paul mentions the circumcision group, they come up in a lot of letters. Sometimes the word Judaizer comes up. And, 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 it's, and it's people who have 
grown up Jews, they're racially Jews, they've become Christians or thought they've become Christians, but they're hanging on to all their Judaism in a way that's way too strong. They're too concerned about circumcision, they're too concerned about food and washing, all those kind of things. Now, one way to kind of summarise in a really general kind of way, likely what's at the heart of the teaching is it's this. The way you find yourself in good relationship with God is through Jesus plus other things. That's the big thing likely here in the false teaching. Jesus plus, and these of the circumcision group are saying things like, yeah, yeah, come to Christ, that's fantastic. Put your trust in Jesus, that's wonderful. And get circumcised. And make sure you keep all the food laws and make sure you keep um, all the other washing laws and do all those things because they're they're not just important but they're kind of essential to you finding yourself in good favour with God. That's likely what's going on. So you could summarise by saying Jesus plus. And I want to kind of go out on a limb and say probably most false teaching in churches that actually gets a following, that people get tricked by, usually looks like this, Jesus plus something else. And I'd say the the three key features of a um, classic false teaching in the church is, number one, it sounds Christian. It's very rare for legitimate Christians to be caught up in dodgy teaching if it doesn't even sound Christian. It sounds Christian. The name Jesus is used. It's about belief in God, but it's got all these extra things attached to it. Number two, it seems complex. Beware of teaching that seems overly intelligent, overly complex, really mystical. It's like, wow, I've read that passage a million times and I never got that. I really need to sit under this person and hear their thoughts on it and then I'll get the truth. It's Gnostic. It's mystic, it's overly complex, it just goes round and round. It's based on the person teaching, not the Word of God, you know. That's the second thing. And the third thing I'd say is often dishonest gain in it. So dodgy teachers will often be trying to get more finances for themselves through this teaching somehow. So that's some of the ways to kind of spot it. Now, what do you see in our day and age that is Jesus plus classic teaching that actually can wreck households? Uh, I'd say it's this. Jesus plus the Book of Mormon. Jesus plus membership in the JW Church. Jesus plus all the Catholic traditions and the approval of the Pope. Jesus plus just anything. Baptism. Um, Tongues. Uh, A particular experience in the Spirit. Whatever. If you go adding anything um, to just Jesus and God's grace to you in Him, it's an issue. What do you do about it? Well, the language here says it's pretty full on, isn't it? Um, verse 9, before we get to the passage, it says, refute those who oppose the truth. So refute them. Verse 11, they must be silenced. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply. You get to chapter 3, verse 9, it says, warn them once, warn them twice, and then disassociate themselves, yourselves with them. Sounds harsh, but it's actually loving. And let me explain how it can be loving. What would be more loving than protecting whole households from being disrupted and wrecked? That's loving, isn't it? Protect households, that they keep the gospel and actually grow up, grow children up in the gospel. And actually, it's not just loving for the people on the receiving end of the teaching, it's loving for the teacher as well, the false teacher. Look at verse 13 and pick up on something there with me. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them harshly so that they will be sound in the faith. 
Catch that? Who's the they there? That's the false teacher, yeah. So rebuke a false teacher so that they may be sound in the faith. So it's actually loving towards them as well, to actually call them back to sound doctrine, call them back to the gospel of grace. This is loving. So I'm just kind of looking. I don't know what I've done with my notes here. Oh, there it is. Yeah, here's where I was. I want to talk about particular application for fathers now. How do you apply this to dads in the home? It's Father's Day. I thought we'd have a crack at doing it. All right? If, if you've been here with us last week and this week, you know the context we're looking at here is trying to figure out who you should step up in church to be teaching in church, and particularly male teaching elders in the church. Well, one thing that we caught yesterday with that, or last week with that list of qualifications, which is really extensive, is this, and, and I'm pretty sure everyone caught this because it's hard to miss, is that the qualifications a person needs or a man needs to step up and teach in church is actually based on his character and ability in the home. It kind of, it kind of focuses back on the home. Now, it doesn't mean he needs to be perfect because otherwise no one would ever lead in church. Okay? There would be no leaders for church if you needed to be perfect in the home. Um, but the thing we need to understand is the leadership of church, the leadership of Christian community anywhere begins in the home. It actually all starts in the home. Home is the place where faith is formed. And men, here's the thing that we all feel a bit intimidated by, but men, God has actually called you and designed you and desires for you to be a pastor in your home. That, that's, and so young men who you're thinking, yeah, I, I, I want to get married, I want to have kids, all that kind of stuff, really what you're aspiring towards is pastoring a household because that's what God calls us to and young women if you're thinking who am I looking for to marry you're not just looking for someone who's hot um, who goes to church no no what you're trying to look for is a bloke who's actually going to be able to grow in Christ himself so that he can lead the home in Christ now they're hard to find and, and, and I myself along with most dads find ourselves going wow are we how well are we going at this you know, I don't, are there any dads here who just want to feel like you are nailing it in the home right now? You know, it's intimidating. But it all starts in the home. And so, this application for fathers, I want to say this bring it back into the home. And if you are a dad in the home or you want to be a dad in the home, here's the three things. Number one, yourself have a firm grip on the trustworthy message. You've got to get it and you've got to hang on to it. Number two, you've got to figure out how to teach sound doctrine in your home. And number three, you've got to figure out how to correct false doctrine in the home. That sounds pretty full on, doesn't it? But that's what we are called to. Now, I've got a couple of, I've got a couple of things that kind of come out of my mind from that and then I want to throw to you and I want to get your reflections, your thoughts, your questions, your freakouts, whatever. All right? Here's, I'll give you three things and then I'll throw to you. First of all, and we're talking particularly for men here and, and dads here, number one, accept the responsibility. Um, most men wish they could stay boys and when they get married, without even knowing it, you, you kind of would like your wife to be like your mum and just look after you. But really what you're called to do is step up and lead. That's inside of every man, the desire to stay a boy. But here's what you need to do. You need to accept the responsibility and make sure you don't abdicate your responsibility to lead your home. Now, your wife is going to be doing that alongside you, God willing, and that's, 
That's God's design and she'll be doing a lot of the heavy lifting, a lot of the time, likely. But don't abdicate your responsibility to her. Don't abdicate your responsibility to church. God willing, over time, we'll build, you know, under God a crank and anchor kids and anchor youth and all that kind of stuff as God enables us. But that is just to complement what's happening in the home. Don't abdicate to church. If you send your kids to a Christian school, don't abdicate to the school. It's, it's, it's on you and it's in the home. And if you're a single mum right now and he's not there, then you're playing both roles. And we need to come alongside you and support you and we want to do that and help you because you've got two you're carrying. So there's the first one, accept responsibility. Second one is this. I've kind of mentioned it a little bit already. Um, it's okay to admit you're intimidated by it. I think leadership in the home, godly leadership in the home, is the, it's, it's got to be the hardest place to teach and lead. Yeah? Because for, for lots of reasons. But I think the main reason is the people in your home see what you're really like. So it's actually really hard to teach them and lead them because they will very quickly, and particularly as the kids grow, they only need a few years before they start doing that, they will call you out on your inconsistencies in your life, right? And I actually think that's one of the great... I love that my kids, teenagehood's going on. And there is... No one's holding back and calling Dad out on his inconsistencies, which is humbling, um, it's embarrassing, it is. But it's a great, great gift. Because Christianity is not just for spruiking with your mouth in public, it's for living in private, it's for the whole of your life. Christianity is life. And so if in the home the ones around you are calling you on it, hopefully respectfully, even if they're not, they're calling you on your inconsistency, it is a grace of God to you that you would continue to grow up and try and live a life of integrity in the home, at work, in public, everywhere, because Jesus is Lord everywhere. Are you with me? And here's the third thing I'd say to you this, um, as far as leading in the home and particularly trying to teach the Bible in your home, it starts with your faith. Your faith needs to be deep and genuine, needs to be legitimate. You cannot offer to others what you do not possess yourself. You can try to pretend to, but they'll see straight through it. You cannot lead others on a path that you're not even on yourself, seriously. So it begins with you and the Lord taking your relationship seriously, going deep with the Lord yourself, learning to actually really understand what he's done for you and delight in it and celebrate it and live in humility in it. All that is going to be at the very basis of your ability to lead and teach in the home. I'm haunted by this reality, um, and maybe you are too, is that more than anything... Your kids will be shaped by what you're like and really who you are than simply the words that come out of your mouth. And I say haunted, because, but, but it's, it's, it's a good kind of haunting. It's like, all right, okay, it, matters, it really matters who I am in Christ. It matters more than anything. Now, I raise this looking around the room at some yet-to-be dads, some young dads, um, some dads who have been dads for years and, and, and I'm always aware when we're talking about dads of like, um, if you've been a dad for many years and your kids have grown up and left, chances are there's things you've got to celebrate there and things that are just heartache for you. And the truth is, there actually is no guarantee that your kids will grow up to actually own the faith that you've brought them up in. 
there's actually no way to guarantee that. The best fathers have children who decide to run from the faith they brought them up in. And if that's, if that's been your experience, that your kids... You, just go to your father in heaven. He knows all about wayward kids who run from what he brings them up in. So he can have compassion with you. Um, now, in saying there's no way to guarantee what goes on, what you, it's because kids grow up and they become adults and they have to decide for themselves. Um, that doesn't actually take off the responsibility to do everything you can by the grace of God and the Spirit of God to actually do what you can to actually have your own faith and actually encourage the little people in your home to grow up and love Jesus and live for Jesus with you. I feel like we approach this topic kind of acknowledging God's goodness to us in some of us for our dads and but there's a, there's a humility in the room and an acknowledgement that no one's killing it here. And so I just feel like we, um, it's a good place to be, in, in a place of humility, going, well, we're having a crack at this. It's my first time being a dad. You only get one go, unfortunately. Um, but, Jesus, can we ask God that he would, by his spirit, pour his spirit out into the lives of our kids and into the lives of us as parents, that we would raise little people who get the gospel of grace, you know, and not miss it and get a Jesus plus or a gospel of works. It's, um, um, probably didn't answer your question of how do you correct it, um, but I'm, I'm going to let, yeah, there's, there's times to teach and there's times to pull open the Bible, but I'll tell you what, living it, I, I think the kids are going to be most shaped by how you are and who you are. Yeah, it doesn't mean you don't read the Bible in church, but yeah. So how about we pray for that, yeah? And continue the conversation, you know. Father God, we, we offer ourselves up to you humbly, admitting that we are completely undeserving of your mercy and grace, um, and we're actually completely unable to live a life of faithful obedience towards you without your ongoing grace by your spirit that lives in us. Please, Lord, continue to pour out your spirit. And by that I mean, would you cause your spirit to well up in us and change us and influence us to be men and women who delight in our salvation, want to share it with the little people that are growing up in our households, and more than anything, share with them the gospel of grace, that it's not by the righteous things we have done, but by your mercy to us in Christ. Please, Lord, help us. We long, for, we long for more and more people to be saved and more and more people to actually live in your love and give you the worship and honour that you're due and know how good it is to be a child loved by their Father in heaven and secure in that love, safe and sound in that love and able to be merciful to others. Please, Lord, do that work in us, not for the sake of us having epic households that we're really proud about for our own namesake. Lord, would you do that work in us so that your name's glorified, so that your household, your household grows and honours you as it should. Amen.